Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. Excited to share this interview with Alan Jang, founder of Beam, the largest shared micromobility operator in Asia Pacific. Asia is one of those hotspots for micromobility that I'm very excited to cover more of this year, as it's often missed in the exciting developments for North America and Europe. But it's home to a huge population who are experiencing the growth, density, and ensuing urban congestion where micromobility really thrives. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Alan, and apologies in advance about the audio. We had a few issues with the internet at his quarantine hotel, and I had to revert to backup recordings about halfway through. It's been relatively quiet on the news front, punctuated only by the rumours that Apple is contract manufacturing a car. Horace has written about this on the micromobility.io website and will be on soon to discuss it. But in the meantime, a quick heads up to also get your ticket for Micromobility World, our first all-digital event running from the 27th to the 29th of January in 2021. We have some of the biggest names in the world of owned and shared micromobility, including the CEO of Lime, disruptive innovation experts such as Gene Munster and Benedict Evans, leaders in urban design like Jeanette Siddiq Khan, and investing gurus from the industry coming together to talk about how we can supercharge the micromobility revolution. Tickets are available on micromobility.io and include the option for a VIP tier for curated community participation and exclusive workshops for industry participants. If you're in the industry, this is the best opportunity you'll probably get this year to meet and connect with others in the space. I highly recommend you check it out and register at micromobility.io. It's going to be awesome. And with that, here's Alan. And welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today Alan Jang from Beam. How are you doing, Alan? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, mate, it's it's great to have you on. Do you want to tell everybody where you are? Because I think that's quite fun. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm actually in in Singapore. I just got back four days ago to enter the country. There is a two-week quarantine. So I'm on day four of quarantine in order to to enter this country. I actually was was in Korea earlier this year and had to do two weeks of quarantine to enter Korea too. So that's that's one month of this year in isolation. Yeah, yeah. Oh, mate, I feel for you. I feel for you. I, I really do. Cool. I mean, in some ways, I'm really excited to talk to you today because we haven't really covered off Asia per se in the sort of shared micromobility space. And so I'm kind of excited to obviously have the opportunity to talk to you about you know what you're doing at Beam, but also just generally talk about Asia and like the, the peculiarities of that market and why it's so interesting. So I thought maybe obviously the best way to maybe start this off would be you just take us through who you are and, and sort of your background and how you came to, to start Beam. Sure. So I've actually been in mobility for, for quite a while. I, I guess the journey started at, at Uber. So I joined Uber in, in the U.S. in uh, early 2013 and originally came out to Asia as a launcher where I launched Uber in a couple of different countries. So you know, helped to launch Uber in uh, China, Malaysia, Vietnam and Indonesia. Spent four years there and after that got sucked into another micro-ability journey at a company called Ofo, one of the early bike share companies. Uh, they were doing very, very fast growth in China, um, hit about 30 million trips a day, I think, when Ofo started looking to expand overseas. Um, so they hired me as a head of Southeast Asia. Ultimately spent only nine months there. Uh, it was a very, very fast growing company. And I think during that period of time, 
I got very convinced that it was just a really, really good business model. Um, just never seen anything like this on the consumer side. Just the consumer side product market fit was so good. It's you, you put assets on the ground, people just use it. You know, the CAC is zero. And really the question is, can you run this business without losing the assets, um, essentially in a more sustainable way? That felt like a very solvable problem. And so, you know, after nine months, decided to leave and, and start Beam. Actually, a lot of the, the senior leadership team that uh, we had recruited over to, to run the OFO Southeast Asia business, a lot of them came over to join Beam because we, we shared that conviction. And so Beam was started as a micro-ability company focused on Asia. We have what we call the focus on three sustainabilities. Um, so the first is uh, economic sustainability which is every country we go to, we make sure we have a profitable business model, strong in economics, sustainable um, you know, vehicle retention. We're not gonna go into a place without having that problem solved. The second is regulatory sustainability. Uh, every country we go to, we talk to regulators first, have a clear understanding of what the path to you know, clear and smart regulation looks like. We do not simply show up and dump vehicles on the streets uh, and, without talking to anyone. And the last is environmental sustainability. You know, we're already uh, certified carbon neutral as a company, um, and we believe that as we add more and more of these electric vehicles to the streets, we're going to be doing very good for the environment. Yeah, awesome. And so, take us through where, where, where Beam has got to. So, you're you're now in how many markets, and and uh, what's your what's your coverage? Yeah, so we're focused on uh, Asia. It's a pretty very very diverse uh, region. We kind of think about Asia as actually three independent sub-mega regions, so to speak. And the three that we're mainly focused on are there is Southeast Asia, where we operate in Malaysia. Um, there is North Asia, which is uh, the countries of Korea, Taiwan, Japan. We have a pretty big business in Korea and also Oceania, uh, Australia, New Zealand, um, where we have a pretty big business as well. Um, so in those four countries, we're today operating in 10 cities. Okay, excellent. So, and the thing that I really got quite excited about when I, I mean, obviously you and I have been talking since uh, pretty early on in the Beam journey, as far as I understand, and uh, introduced Fire. We went, I don't think we were at Uber at the same time. Maybe we were at Uber at the same time, but yeah, definitely knew, uh, knew, knew a fair number of people uh, in common. But um, the thing I always found interesting was, you know, that you you were kind of relatively early in raising it. And, and when in the early days, it was sort of like, you kind of could see that there were regional plays around this uh, coming up and uh, uh, coming up. Um, and then, um, and then subsequently as well, you've really taken over and you're now one of the largest operators in Seoul, Korea, which I hadn't fully kind of comprehended, but actually is one of the largest, if not the largest scooter markets in the world. So uh, there's a lot in there that I want to unpack, but I do, I do, maybe if we can start off with um, Seoul, like how long you've been there and how you've seen that market develop and, and um, what, what, what else you can tell us about it. And then we're going to pack, you know, go out to the other areas as well. Seoul's an interesting market. Uh, so we first set foot in June, 2019. At the time it was, you know, pretty early. A lot of operator was running the, uh, the old nine bot ES sharing vehicle. Um, and despite that, uh, you know, demand was pretty good. The city is just really huge. The metro is 26 million people. Um, most of it was built in the past few decades. And after, uh, after the Korean War, you know, most of the, the country was raised to the ground. And so infrastructure is very good. I think the thing that excites us the most about Asia in general is just the opportunity with a lot of these mega cities. There are 
a number of cities across Asia, uh, Seoul being one of them, Tokyo one of them, you know, Jakarta is a very interesting one. All of them have you know, 20 million plus population. And just the sheer amount of mobility challenge in uh, getting around these huge cities, I think represents a, a very, very interesting opportunity. The other thing that makes, I think, us very excited about Asia is even the smaller cities. Um, you know, if we're talking second, third tier cities in a lot of these countries, we're still talking million plus people in, you know, uh, cities that, you know, even for me, I'd never heard of uh, until uh, until the past few years. Yeah, absolutely. So, so take me through when you say Seoul is 20, 26 million people and it's really taken to it. Like how many scooters are there deployed across the whole city? Do you know that? The most recent estimate from like the Korea Transport Institute is there's almost 40,000 shared vehicles deployed around Seoul. Based on my understanding, that's the largest city for shared scooters uh, or shared scooters and e-bikes in the world. Am I, would that be correct? You, is that, would that be in line with what you've seen? To the best of our knowledge, it probably is as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's marvelous in some ways. It's, it's a, uh, we, we oftentimes talk about Paris and uh, Paris and Europe as being like the city that uh, everybody wants to kind of get because, you know, it was. It was such a large piece of Lyme's business and, and others as well. Um, but yeah, Seoul is just sort of out there operating. So then who are the operators in Seoul in addition to you? There's a lot. So there's probably a long tail of maybe 20 plus operators of the international ones there is Lime. Lime's there. I think Wind has a small presence. Um, out of the Korean operators, the three biggest probably are companies uh, Kikoing, Xingxing, uh, Gogushing. And uh, there's a long tail of small operators that have fleets of 300 to 1,000 scooters in various parts of the country as well. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and how big are you in, in Seoul? In Seoul, we have about 10,000 scooters. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of blows my mind. <laughs> that's a that's a lot of scooters. So can you talk me through the uh, so of the ten thousand? Just what your operations are like. How does that? How does scaling to ten thousand scooters change your operational game? From you know, if you operate a, a smaller fleet of say four hundred to eight hundred to a thousand, which is what a lot of other operators will be operating in a lot of cities around the world. There's definitely a lot of uh, advantages to scale. The, the consumer side one is the interesting one. Is just there's a lot more places to, to put scooters and focus them on areas with the best demand and, and making sure that we have the best density in those areas. You know, we're, we're not a fan of you know, spreading them out really, really, really far and, and getting a lot of coverage. Um, I think that the density is really important to, to be kind of the user top of mind. From an operational perspective, density also helps. You know, we look at metrics like how many battery swaps can uh, our rangers do on, a, on an hourly basis. And if you have scooters that are more clustered together and in better density, then you get a lot more efficiency there as well, which drives down ops cost. Yeah, and I guess the, the city itself is actually with, it's built with a fair amount more density. Can you talk me through the sort of like the layout of, 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 of Seoul and also what the mode share for different operators, for people to get around in the city? I mean, I assume cars aren't the primary means of transport for most people. Korea has a really developed public transit network. Huge amount of usage of like subways, um, buses are, are very popular. There is a very popular dock-based bike share system uh, called Soul Bike, um, which is probably 
I don't know the specific numbers, but probably they are doing more trips than any other operator, <laughs> but they've been around for a long time. Cars are definitely very popular. Uh, traffic is a huge issue. And, you know, during rush hour, you could be stuck in, you know, CBD traffic for a long time. And so, you know, I think commuting time, because just the sheer size of the city and the sheer population, you know, commuting time could easily be one to two hours, depending on how far you're going in and out of the city. Yeah. And with the and with the city scooters and the fact that you know ten thousand sounds like a lot, but in the city of twenty six million, probably not actually that many. But um, you know, is there is there good infrastructure in which um they can operate? So is there good is there good bike lanes? Are there sort of well connected nodes between which people will transport? Do you find that these are being used better for like first last mile connections? Like how you know any, anything you can share in there around how the city how the city's kind of absorbed the scooter fleet? Yeah, so I think. Maybe similar to a lot of other cities around the world, where you know there's always opportunity to improve the uh, micro mobility infrastructure. You know, investments to build a lot more bike lanes uh, are definitely something that would be helpful for improving kind of consumer side adoption. That said, because the most of the country infrastructure is quite new, only a few decades old, it's mostly designed with much more modern, you know, wide streets, wide sidewalks, and so the ability for you know, to the extent that, you know, in the early days, micromobility is borrowing infrastructure built for other <laughs> form factors. Um, you know, some of that is much uh, bigger and maybe much more consumer friendly in Korea. Yeah. Do, do folks end up riding them predominantly on the sidewalks or are they riding them on the road? Uh, predominantly sidewalks. Interesting. And has there been a uh, backlash there around, um, you know, the safety concerns, et cetera? Or how do you, how do you manage for that? I think as with every country, there's definitely going to be a kind of phase-in period for something new. I think the issues around like the rider safety, are these vehicles safe to ride? Uh, issues around you know, pedestrian safety, uh, for example, if someone is uh, you know, getting, you know, scooters are going by, um, you know, parking is a big one. Uh, scooters being parked in the middle of the sidewalk, you know, in front of my store, for example. Um, so these are all kind of complaints that definitely need to be handled. I think in general, I mean, as you sort of have pointed out, there are kind of three major areas of uh, of, of of the remit that you're thinking of for, for the company. So North Asia, I can imagine, is pre- pre- relatively similar, though I would argue as well, having looked at the streets in Japan, that they obviously have quite a different um, street layout. And I'm curious, because uh, they don't have any on-street car parking and... Typically, cars are like mixed in with. They oftentimes don't even have sidewalks, uh, at least in some of the side streets, etc. And then, but then you go further south, and you've got like Jakarta, and I want to talk to you about what that. You know, oh, sorry, is it where is it in? Uh, where is it? Is it in Malaysia that you're operating? Yeah, so we're operating in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Yeah, yeah. The I mean, the infrastructure there is definitely you know nowhere near the the modernization and quality of of Seoul. But that said, actually, the, the demand in Malaysia is still really good. Um, we haven't found infrastructure to be kind of like a driving factor of demand. Um, and one of the big things I think that draw people to these vehicles is, is the convenience of the price. If it's in front of your door and it's cheaper than whatever alternative mode of transport, um, then it's a big uh, you know, it's a big draw. And the other thing in Kuala Lumpur is traffic is just horrible. Public transit, you know, is not very good. Huge amount of car usage. And so there's the additional factor of, you know, if I get on a scooter, I may actually get from point A to point B faster than driving my own car. Yeah, yeah, I totally hear that. 
I, I wonder as well, I mean, just about the um, the city formation in, in Kuala Lumpur and how, whether or not they would look at, for example, um, investments in public transport versus cars versus infrastructure for micromobility and how that assess for that and whether or not they'd turn around and say, oh, well, actually, this is sort of relatively cheap infrastructure and we can build it quickly and therefore we want to do it. Yeah, any, I mean, because I can't imagine, what, do you know what the, the mode share of different modes are in, um, in, in a city like Kuala Lumpur? Sorry, I'm asking you all these like quite nerdy, uh, hard questions. <laughs> I'm aware I didn't give you any prep uh, for any of that. <laughs> yeah, very, very, very statistical kind of questions. I think just kind of back of the envelope, cars are very, very popular. Um, I would say the predominant mode share is, is a car. Um, cars in Malaysia are also very cheap. Um, there's, two local companies, uh, like Malaysian car manufacturers that make very, very cheap cars, um, which just makes it a lot more accessible. Public transit is is not that good. I think, you know, maybe, maybe with the ride share, uh, which has been gotten, you know, more popular in the past decade or so, that is probably a decent chunk of, uh, of, of the share, but taxis previously were not that popular because they weren't, they weren't very safe. I take it biking isn't that, is certainly not that common. No, motorbikes. There's a decent amount of motorbikes. So I would say the most of the mode share is probably just private vehicles. It's people driving their own cars and motorbikes. And then let's take it down. So we've kind of covered off Seoul. We've kind of covered off uh, Southeast Asia, at least, in a sort of uh, kind of um, top line sense. Talk me through the Oceania market as you've seen it. Australia, New Zealand is definitely you know very interesting uh, part of Asia. It's probably the the most Western <laughs> Western looking type of Asian market, uh, which makes it very different. I think the biggest, um, most important thing to address in uh, a lot of the Australia, New Zealand markets is safety. As an example, it's a it's a place where helmet usage is is highly highly encouraged. Um, there is a lot more like heavy usage of places like no parking zones, slow speed zones around areas with a lot of pedestrians, which we think are very good. Um, I think there are definitely areas where it is a lot easier to use a scooter and there's a lot of places where scooters, you know, have to interact with a lot of existing, you know, people or infrastructure. Um, and I think the regulation should be different in those places. So it's definitely a lot more advanced in terms of the, the thinking of how to regulate the space. Australia and New Zealand is also a place with uh, huge demand and probably less seasonality. So, you know, December, Jan, Feb, uh, typically most of the world is going into very cold season. Um, but it's also a place where it's, it's you know, very nice weather uh, these days down, down under. And so we have a, a nicely growing business there right now. Yeah, fantastic. And of the cities that you are in, in Oceania, you're in, how many cities are you in in Australia and New Zealand? Five. And for those markets, I mean, is there anything unique or as you say, you sort of, there's different seasonality, I get that. But in terms of, um, you know, typically those cities, as I understand that would be less dense versus for example, some of those Asian cities that you've been talking about, you know, Seoul and, and Kuala Lumpur, does that, how, how does it impact in terms of like trips per day or how you think about vehicle distributions and things like that? Oh, interesting question. I think actually the, the, the biggest factor for, uh, how, how the ANZ operations is different is is actually the uh, the vehicle caps. Um, so every city uh, in ANZ typically goes to a tender, um, and the tender has a uh, uh, a cap on the number of vehicles you can operate, and also uh, a license award for only a specific number of operators. And what that means is, in every city, once you win a license. 
um, you're typically one of two or one of three operators who can operate X amount of vehicles. Um, and that is probably the biggest driver of what, what makes it different rather than a city where it's a little bit more uh, lax. And so in Canberra, for example, uh, it's a place where we have an ability to operate uh, 750 vehicles and the other operator also can do 750 vehicles. Um, and so we would want to position our vehicles in the most prime areas. And typically that would be like the CBD uh, as an example. So we'd focus a lot of our operations there. Um, and as vehicles flow outwards, then we would have to rebalance and bring them back uh, to the CBD. And that's required, right? That's a, that's a, that's a operating requirement when you get the tender? Uh, it's not, it's just that's the place where the vehicles get the most usage. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I understand that there, there, there's been a, um, oh, certainly in, in Auckland and New Zealand, there was a, there was a new tier system, which was introduced. And I'm just, I, I actually don't, I, I, as far as I understand, it was picked up from an American, uh, from, from the Americans. And that was why we ended up deploying it. But I was wondering if it was more common across ANZ, but maybe not. Uh, no, they're, they're, you're right. So in Auckland, there is a, a tier system where um, they kind of split the city into three three tiers, uh, and there's a specific amount of vehicles that can operate in each tier. Um, that's not the case for most Australian cities. Oh wow. Okay. Cool. And then so um, of the so does that mean then that so when you say you're operating ten thousand scooters, it's because um, there were kind of it, it was an open it was an open slate for the operators who came in, and effectively you could pick as many as you wanted or did you have to go some through, through some sort of vetting process for for both Seoul and, and then Kuala Lumpur as well? In Korea and Southeast Asia right now, there is no tender process, um, but it's it's more of, I think, building a relationship with the local uh, government in case that, you know, various issues come up around safety or parking. Can you talk me through what happened at OFA? Because, I mean, we kind of skipped over it in the beginning, but that itself is a fascinating story. Because in some ways, right, that, that it feels like as we think about the impact of cities and how cities think about regulating it, they've got a couple of pre, you know, pre-examples that they can look back to and be like, well, we didn't do that very well or we did that okay. And one of them is obviously the, the introduction of ride hailing and um, Grab and Uber and, and those others into those cities. And then also as well, the, the explosion of the bikes, um, which as far as I understood, actually really like set things back for a lot of people in terms of how they thought about um, the, scoot the scooter or the shared micromobility game in terms of the, like the first iteration versus then coming into the second iteration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think both of those are pretty interesting topics. I think the comparison to OFO, uh, you know, the early, early micromobility days, and also the comparison to rideshare. Maybe I can talk about OFO first. I think one of the biggest challenges uh, at OFO was there was a huge focus on the consumer side. Consumer product market fit was just so exciting. And that just kind of the business went into essentially growth at all cost mode because, because you could do that on the consumer side. But, you know, there's a lot of businesses where uh, the consumer is essentially the only stakeholder that matters. Um, and uh, a lot of startups kind of live and die by their ability to have consumers. Um, but I think the key missing ingredient in the super early days of micro-ability is that there's a second key factor here, which is the asset. Um, and the asset loss rate was just kind of really unsustainable in those early days. Um, and I think probably there was just not a, enough of a focus on making sure that was the assets were being retained. Um, 
And I think kind of the new wave of micro mobility operators, you know, we saw some pretty big fundraisers in Europe, for example. Uh, I think some of those operators, as well as, you know, Beam, were really focused on asset retention and making sure that the assets we deploy on the ground were, were not losing those. You know, every single vehicle that gets missing, we, we try our hardest to chase it down how, and deep dive. How do we not lose it in the future? And so, you know, on a monthly basis, we, we have above 99% monthly vehicle retention now. Um, and so the assets we deploy essentially are able to generate revenue and profits for us at a, at a much longer time than you know, the early days where OFO was just dumping bicycles and very quickly losing them. How this impacts conversations with government is, I think that you know, explaining the financial viability um, and longevity of uh, a micro-mobility business like us today versus you know, the guys who just dumped 100,000 bicycles and then uh, collapsed and just left them on the street. Um, that is a big concern for governments. And so kind of proving our ability to uh, be solvent and not do that again to these cities is something that's really important um, in a lot of these conversations. Can you talk me through some of those early days at OFO? Like, what was some of the craziest stuff that, that came about? Because as you say, you know, you went from like pretty much zero to 30 million rides a day in a very short period of time, uh, at least that they did in China. And what did it look like when you, when, what does growth at all costs look like when you're, when you're um, trying to scale or look at um, moving into markets across, across um, the rest of Asia? I think what happened in China was something that could probably have only happened in China. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think I think the ability to dump millions of bicycles onto the streets of China and 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 go talk to the governments later, maybe, maybe that's a strategy that works there. I, I don't know, um, but that would never be the strategy that I choose to take in in Asia, um, ex China. Um, and you know, when they brought me on to to run the Southeast Asia business, there had already been a pretty substantial operation here. There was a pretty big business in Singapore, so I, you know, I, I wasn't employee zero, in, in you know, outside of China. So there was a pretty big business, I think, of of maybe like a hundred people already, you know, on the ground in five countries, a decent, uh, you know, five figure amount of bikes, and I was shocked to learn that there was not a single person whose job it was to talk to governments, and so that was the first person you know I went out to hire. And uh, we ended up hiring, you know, two people, uh, both who are like amazing uh, individuals, Chris and Isabel, who have both joined us at Beam now. You know, dumping bicycles without talking to anyone definitely set the industry back because now there's a reputation of micro mobility operators just showing up and dumping bicycles without talking to anyone, <laughs> uh, which is you know not the case today. Mm. The second interesting thing was, as, as I as the, you know the new person coming in, I was trying to get a grasp of the magnitude of the business. And, you know, one of the questions I asked in Singapore was how many bicycles do we have? And, you know, a supply chain team told us, uh, we have 80,000 bicycles in Singapore plus or minus 5,000. <laughs> um, so, so there was, there was a clear kind of, you know, lack of very good ability to track all the assets that was, that, that just was you know, already not a, not a very sustainable way of running the business. And I think those kind of experiences, you know, really define how, you know, we think about micro mobility today, which is we have to track every single asset, every single one very, very closely. And we also have to go and build a lot of these regulatory conversations pre-entering a market in all countries.
Speaking of hardware uh, and, and, and keeping track of it, what, is, what has been your strategy on hardware and how have you thought about it from the kind of, from when you've thought about it in the beginning to, to where you've got to now? Yeah, so I think we have, uh, <clears throat> we've taken an approach that is maybe a little bit different from a lot of operators. And I think maybe we're starting to see some, some operators kind of converge on this approach as well. You know, when Beam started, we've taken the view that hardware is ultimately going to be commoditized, essentially. You know, the scooter is not a incredibly complex piece of hardware. If you compare it to uh, cars, for example, the number of like moving parts, um, you know, what's the, the difference between a Ford or a Toyota or a Hyundai? Or, is there a single car that is just step function, you know, so differentiated versus others? And in the early days, you know, scooters were pretty crappy. It was a consumer version with a GPS tracker slapped onto it. And that certainly resulted in lower uh, vehicle retention rates as well as higher operating costs. But because it's not that complicated, um, we also felt it was something that a lot of the you know, very successful ODMs, and a lot of these guys have built you know, very complex kind of machines and are huge companies. And, and we believe that they're going to have innovation that is going to really be a big tailwind for the industry. So, you know, we use the same, you know, crappy nine bot ES sharing vehicle that a lot of the operators started with, but rather than branching out and saying, Hey, we're going to go design a better scooter uh, ourselves," We said, Hey, I think nine bot is, is working on a much better vehicle. Um, there's also, you know, other ODMs like Okai who make pretty good vehicles and, why don't we just work with them, uh, provide some localized inputs and some of our operating experience to make suggestions on how they can make their hardware better. And that's kind of what we've done. Um, so the uh, super, like our, our e-scooter fleet is almost entirely Ninebot and our e-bikes um, are currently from Okai. Um, so we're actually working with both. Um, that's enabled us to be multimodal faster um, and also continually stay on the cutting edge of hardware. Um, so for example, when Ninebot and Okai both develop swappable battery technology, um, we've been able to capitalize on that immediately. Um, whereas some operators who maybe decided to go in-house have been a bit slower to develop that in that kind of technology in-house. And in terms of cost, does it mean that the, I mean, is there, is there any benefit there in terms of uh, cost with that strategy? Like, does it end up being cheaper or um, versus developing your own uh, your your own hardware? I think the uh, operating cost uh, of a vehicle is uh, and, and really optimizing that is where a lot of the the economics benefit comes from, um, and also like vehicle retention um, is really important. Um, certainly, uh, you know, there's a margin that is going to manufacturers today. Uh, and, and that's something that if we're not developing the vehicle ourselves, then, you know, they're going to get that margin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways that's why I'm asking, right. It's because like they, they capture that margin that, uh, you in theory could capture if you were doing your own contract manufacturing or, or, or uh, even building your own, uh, building your own scooters. Um, but I guess that, that, that's. At the same time, you're getting all the benefits um, and you get to, as you say, pick up the early technology that they roll out uh, quickly. I think the early technology is definitely an important one. You know, if, if we went our own hardware route, for example, would we have built swappable battery tech as early as, as some of these guys did? 
Um, you know, that's, that's definitely one question mark. And uh, as additional innovations come out, are we going to be able to keep pace? Um, that's, you know, you know, for the scooter, uh, that's one. Mm. Um, but I think the second one is multimodal. You know, if you're really saying that you have a hardware advantage, then you have to build your own hardware for every vehicle type. Um, you can't really say, hey, I'm building a custom scooter, but then I'm going to use o- Okai's e-bike. <laughs> and, you know, if I roll out motorbikes, I'm going to use uh, some, you know, other ODM's motorbikes um, and not build my own, then then it's not really a full stack, you know, custom hardware solution anymore. It is, it is different to the traditional thinking in the industry, which is you talk to all of the Americans and you talk to the European operators and they're all about developing their own hardware. I don't think anybody has said we're going to go with the standard hardware strategy. But that's also, I think, just an, inter- an interesting uh, reflection on, on the state of the industry. Any, any, thoughts on, or any thoughts on why it's different for you guys and how you've thought about it versus, versus them? Is it due to capital availability? Like if you could have raised an extra 10 or 15 or $20 million, would you ever have gone and done that? Or is it a philosophical thing for you? I guess that's, a, that's an interesting question. A lot of the European operators were are using the same ODMs. So there's, you know, Ninebot is, is, you know, has like very large customer in Europe. Um, Okai has very large customer in Europe. And there's definitely some level of customization on a lot of these vehicles. And uh, I think some of that depends on, you know, what regulations look like in specific markets. For example, if you have to attach blinkers on the side or, or license plate, or if there's certain, you know, consumer uh, demand for a certain type of vehicle. Um, so those are kind of like minor customizations. But the bulk of the vehicle itself is effectively a Ninebot or an Okai design, um, which is quite similar to the e-scooter that we use or the, the, with, from Ninebot or the, the, the e-bike that we use from, uh, from Okai. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, well, speaking of fundraising, I mean, can you take me through uh, where you've got to to date in terms of fundraising and then, uh, you know, whether or not or how you've <clears throat> seen the conversation change in the, in the time that you've been fundraising? Yeah, so I think we we closed our Series A in April. Uh, it was a twenty six million dollar round led by Sequoia and Hana Bank, which is one of the biggest banks in Korea. I think very lucky. I think in in, in terms of timing, it was in the the bottom of the the, the COVID period um, and and probably the uh, most severe lockdowns around the world, like maybe most uniformly around the world at that time. Um, but it was very lucky in terms of timing because it allowed us to get fresh capital at a, a point where we had kind of decent chunk of the COVID picture in front of us. And we were able to plan our CapEx expenditure as well as our expansion with a lot of that view in front of us. So I think we've been able to pull through the, the past you know, six months pretty strongly. Uh, you know, we've grown the business by a lot. Um, we actually were, were fully EBIT uh, profitable in Q3. And so it's been you know, a really important and exciting past six months. I think there is definitely a lot of tailwinds in investor conversations you know, post seeing a lot of the profitability success that a lot of operators have had. I think you know, one of the perhaps most damaging things to the reputation of the industry was the, the 80% down round that Lime had earlier in the year. Um, yeah. But it's great to see that Lime has also pulled through and gotten to that you know EBIT profitable point in in Q3 of last uh, of this year as well. Um, so I think the there's definitely a sentiment that this industry is um, is looking much better than it was earlier this year. Absolutely. And when you say EBIT profitable 
Because there's a, you know, this is a claim that everybody makes and nobody has standardized uh, reporting on metrics in terms of that. So does that include head office? Does that include, I mean, it's EBIT, so earnings before interest and tax. So does that include the entire, across the entire company, you're EBIT profitable? Yes. Yeah. Including yeah. all the operations, all the head office and depreciation. Yeah. Wow. Okay, cool. That's exciting. <laughs> What do you think is the end state for this, for, 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 for operators in your, in your space? I mean, do you look at Seoul and go, look, we could double this business in the next year? Do you look at other, I mean, obviously there are some markets in which you operate. So for example, in, in Oceania, where there are caps, there are, you know, it's a highly regulated scheme, but then you look at the rest of Asia and you kind of go, oh, they don't have any caps there. I mean, how do you think that the, the government side of things is going to evolve? And what is that, what are the implications for your business in that regard? You know, I, I always like to frame this in the context of businesses that we get compared to. I think in looking at a new business, people like to compare it to things that they've seen before in order to kind of wrap their heads around it. And the one common comparison we get that I think is very untrue is we get compared to rideshare a lot. Um, mm. People say, oh, it's another mobility company and uh, it's sharing, uh, moving people around through shared vehicles. Um, and by the way, a lot of the uh, founders or employees are all from Uber as well. So it's, it's like a rideshare company, but it couldn't be further from the truth. The first thing is a rideshare company is a platform business. They don't own assets. Uber doesn't have their own drivers. They don't have their own customers. All they do is match two people together. And what that means is it's easy to grow. Um, and you have a very nice flywheel effect where adding drivers to the platform gener you know, means shorter ETAs, means you have more customers and more customers means drivers make more money, so you have more drivers, et cetera. I mean, you know this very well. Micro-ability is not a platform business. You know, the, the start is you put scooters in the ground and that more scooters means more customers because a better density, shorter walking you know, distance to the scooter. But having more customers doesn't generate scooters out of thin air because it doesn't mean you have capital to buy more vehicles. Essentially, we're actually much more like an asset management business than a platform business. And there's two implications. The first is it's a lot easier to get profitable. When you own your own assets, no one else can come and steal your assets. So in Rideshare, for example, Uber has a lot of drivers on the platform. And when another competitor comes in like Lyft, Lyft comes in, they don't bring their own drivers to a new city. They offer incentives and steal Uber's drivers. And so this creates some, this, this Nash equilibrium where incentives become a very powerful way to spin the flywheel faster. But when a competitor comes in and is stealing your assets, you have a negative flywheel effect and you also have to throw incentives. And so it's very hard to get profitable. But in an asset business, you know, when a competitor comes into a, a market that, that we're already present in, they cannot steal our assets. They have to bring their own assets. And so you have no negative flywheel effect on profitability. And it really becomes a question of whether each individual operator can generate a return on their own assets. So profitability becomes a lot easier and a lot more sustainable. Um, the challenge is growth requires capital. In a platform business, you, to grow faster, you can put in incentives, but you, without capital, you could also just grow the flywheel um, organically itself. Um, but if you have 10,000 scooters in a city and no additional scooters going to that city, you'll sign up customers slowly over time, but your trips per vehicle per day and your total trips in the city is not going to increase that fast. And so what I think that does for the, you know, the, 
what the kind of a Nash equilibrium or the, the future state of micromobility looks like is I ultimately think like we believe it's going to be a very fragmented kind of environment because I, even with the, you know, the, the big fundraisers that Tier and Voy have just announced, um, I still think there is a capital constraint to supplying enough CapEx to essentially the market opportunity around the world. Yeah. And you know, Seoul is, is easily a city which I think can accommodate half a million scooters. You know, that's going to cost a single operator $300 million to buy that many scooters just for Seoul. You know, no one has $300 million today, um, let alone for just Seoul and not the rest of Korea or APAC or APAC and Europe and US. <laughs> um, and so, um, so I think, you know, it's going to be very fragmented. Uh, the comparison that we kind of think about this business is we actually think of it as much more similar to coffee shops. You know, people uh, are going to go to Starbucks. There's big chains like Starbucks, Coffee Bean. There's also going to be, you know, smaller chains like Blue Bottle. There's going to be the, the, the quarter cafe um, who has, you know, loyal customers and great coffee and great pastries, but, you know, it doesn't have a second store. Um, mm, and mm. I think that's, Ultimately, the micro-ability environment is going to evolve quite similarly. And to the extent that there is an operator with 500 vehicles on a university campus, um, you know, they were there first. They have you know, a great product, uh, but not an ability to finance more vehicles. It's going to be very hard for someone to come in and put in more scooters there. Um, I mean, you could come into that campus and put 2,000 scooters and have better density. But why would you do that when you could put those 2,000 scooters somewhere else and make more money? Um, because it's a return yeah. on capital game. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so it's going to be very, your yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I really like that framework. And I, I think the other thing as well, which oftentimes gets overlooked and certainly when I think about it from a, you know, I want to be able to walk down the street and open any scooter and I, they, they will be back end compatible. And like that, you know, say for example, Seoul said, look, every operator in Seoul has to have, you know, has to work in sort of this open, this open API. I mean, at the end of the day, people are pretty habitual and they will likely go to a campus and or a workplace and or a specific geography and that that ends up defaulting to you know there'll be just be certain operators that sort of take over and are like i'm just going to be the operator in this area or and or you might have a competitor come in and they'll compete for it but it's you know it's it's the the, the level of um interoperability is not you know there's not that high a friction between to, to download another app if that makes sense um, and, and create a new account. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's big, but it's not the end of the world, you know? Yeah. And I think that's totally fine. You know, I think uh, if, you know, the, the, the best users of micromobility are probably going to have multiple apps, just like the heaviest drinkers of coffee are going to go to both Starbucks and Coffee Bean. Um, and, you know, Starbucks is not trying to kill every Coffee Bean store. Starbucks is just saying, hey, every next store I build, how do I make the most money possible? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The other, the only other thing that I do want to bring up is is about the riot hailing game and whether or not, um, you know, we've seen it happen in Europe with Bolt getting heavily into the game of micromobility uh, as one of the, the ex Taxify. You know, they were one of the largest ride hailing games in the planet in Europe. And then you've got kind of Grab and Gojek looking tentatively at micromobility. And I know that Didi has been getting into the micromobility space in China. So, um, how do you think about them as competitors? It's interesting because I, I think around the world, probably the ride hail company that has seen the most success was Didi. They acquired a smaller bike share operator, funded it, and perhaps maybe they allowed it to run a little bit more independently. I don't know. Um, but I think they've seen some success in China. 
you know, as far as we've seen with ride hail companies around outside of China, there has not been much success with this business. And I think that one of the biggest factors for that is because it's such a different operation from ride hail, you know, food delivery and package delivery um, is actually much more similar to ride hail than micro mobility because they're all platforms It's connecting party A to party B or maybe food delivery ad in party C, but it's still, it's still a platform. But micro-mobility is, is an asset management business. And putting assets on the ground, owning the assets, financing the assets, and managing those yourself, I think is a very different business. And I think that's been one of the challenges we've seen so far with a lot of the ride-hail operators who have tried to get into this space, have been operating it for a couple of years and you know, haven't seen a lot of that uh, same success. No, all very fair points. I, I, I quite agree. I was wondering if there was anything different specific around Asia and, uh, you know, why DD had managed to have success in that space versus, uh, you know, any of the other ride, ride, uh, ride hail game uh, players that have tried to get into that game. I think maybe, maybe just uh, to, to clarify also, um, I think a lot of the ride hail players will go into the space and, you know, just because uh, it hasn't, you know, just because they, they haven't built the business in a huge way, the same way they did with ride hail doesn't mean that they're not going to be able to do that in the future. That said, I still think it's going to be uh, a very fragmented outcome because, you know, even these ride hail operators who, you know, may have a lot of cash today, they still have a capital constraint, which is the quantity of cash needed to capture the entire market share, I think is more money than any operator has. Great. Well, from my side, there's, I want to say thank you. This has been a great conversation and really interesting. Um, I think this is one of those, um, one of those ones where we don't oftentimes talk about uh, micromobility in Asia. I think this is actually really the first kind of time we've actually dealt with um, with the shared micromobility in Asia and, and how we're thinking about it. And so, uh, yeah, it's just great to get your perspective and, and, and thinking. Um, for folks who want to track you down and find out more about you, where would they? Where, where can they go and do that? Best way, uh, my email, I guess. Uh, it's alan at ridebeam.com. A-L-A-N at ridebeam.com. Excellent. And are you on Twitter? Uh, I'm not. Okay. Brilliant. That's probably a good use of your time. So email or, <laughs> or I guess, I guess uh, LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Cool. All right. Hey, well, thank you so much, Alan. Really appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you. I enjoyed our conversation. Have a great day.